just a moment, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 41. So if you want to grab your Bible and go ahead to Genesis chapter 41, feel free uh, to do that. And if you did not bring a Bible to, today, one of the things we love to do at our church is to give away Bibles. We love for people to have a copy of God's Word in their hands. So if you did not bring a Bible today and you want one, our ushers are going to be coming up and down the aisle in, in just a moment. Uh, and they're just going to be holding Bibles. And these are Bibles that we have bought to give out to people who need a Bible, who want a Bible. So if you forgot a Bible today and you want one to just read along, we're going to study kind of a big chunk of Genesis 41. Just wave at them. They'll give you one. You can use this today. Uh, if you just forgot your Bible and you want to have one in your lap, if you don't have a Bible or you can't remember where yours is, then I want you to put your name in this Bible and to keep it since our church has started. Uh, we've given away more than 300 Bibles this way, and I have heard from dozens of people who say, Christian, that was one of the first Bibles I had, and I took it, and I started reading it, so uh, it, it's our gift to you. Thank you for being here. We would love for you to be able to study along with us in Genesis 41 in just a minute. Uh, I have a confession to make about this week. Uh, I have been angry most of this week, really since, since my message last Sunday. You know, every time that I give up, get up to, to teach or to speak or to give a Bible study or to preach, whatever you want to call it, um, I won't ever bring anything to this stage that I haven't personally preached to myself first. Somebody asked me this week, like, do you, do you make your own messages? Yes, I do make my own messages, and, and normally they're messages that I need the most, probably more than anyone in here I need to apply what I am saying as much or more than anyone. And I, and I have been frustrated by, by what I have been learning, by what I have been teaching. And this week I was angry and, and I was accusatory uh, this week. We're in a series at our church all month long called Biblical Economics. Um, and we've been talking about what the Bible says about finances. And last week I told you uh, in my 20s, I, you know, I look back on the decade of my 20s. I'll be 35 two months from today actually. Uh, and in my 20s, I, I, I did a really, really, really poor job in two areas. Uh, I believe I was a really bad husband. I believe I did a bad job managing my marriage in my 20s. Uh, I think I was a good dad because I put lots of emphasis on being a good dad. And being a good dad was very important to me. But, I, you know, Danielle probably wouldn't say it as, as much as I would. But as I, look about, as I look at what a biblical husband is, and how a biblical husband should love, and how a biblical husband should lead, I, I realized in my 20s I was a really bad biblical husband. And it grieves my heart, and I want to get better. And I work hard to be better in that area. Uh, I also, in my 20s, I was horrible with money. I mean, really, really bad with money. I don't only spend everything I made. I, I spent more than I made. I, you know, I got to 30, and I had credit card debt, and I had consumer debt, and I had all this nice stuff that I thought I should have that I wanted and I thought, you know, just financially, I, you know, I really am a wreck. I have managed myself very, very poorly. But this week, I got to the point where I started focusing on what I taught last week. Last week, we looked at a, what we called a biblical perspective on finances. And I turned my anger away from me toward others for just a minute. And, I, you know, I got really mad that no one taught me that I can remember when I was 16, 17, 18, that no one taught me what the Bible said about managing my finances. Uh, I got mad at my school. You know, I thought about all the classes that I took, and even the finance, you know, I thought about the economics classes I took, and I thought, you know, I know the definition of supply and demand, but nobody told me, Christian, this is how you take care of your money. I got mad at my churches, because I thought, you know, the only thing that I can remember, and, I, and I'm sure they taught it better, but the only thing I can ever remember a church telling me about my finances was, was that I was supposed to give. They didn't tell me how I was supposed to save, they didn't tell me how I was supposed to spend, 
They really didn't tell me how I was supposed to plan and budget. You know, I, I, the, what I remember churches saying about my money is I was supposed to give my money to a church. I got mad at my mom and dad who had provided for me my whole life, but when I went off to college, didn't really say much to me about get a credit card or don't get a credit card or here's how much you should, sh- should save or um, you know, here, here's a budget that you should keep. And I, I just found myself blaming everyone for the situation that I was in and I was angry because of what I said last week in my message. As we look last week at the biblical perspective on finances, we said the first thing that Bible teaches is this word called stewardship. And stewardship means I'm responsible. And I went from being angry at my parents, to my school, to my churches, to pastors. I went from being angry with everyone else to being angry at myself because I realized, you know, I really blew it. I really, you know, for 10 years I really blew it. And now I'm at 34 working my way out of what I got myself into in my 20s. And I thought, you know, I've had a Bible all my life. I could have picked it up and read it. This wasn't really big on my plate. We looked last week at this, the biblical theme of gratitude and being thankful for things in life. And I think I was a very discontent, ungrateful person for much of my 20s in the areas of personal finance. We look at this area of contentment, being able to say, I am satisfied. We asked a question last week, if you never make a dollar more than you're making now, if your wage has been set for the rest of your life, if you're never able to upgrade your house, upgrade your car, if you're never able to to buy new and better clothes, can you today say you're satisfied and you don't need anything more for the rest of your life? Most of us could could not say that, but that's what contentment is. And then I looked at this theme of generosity. I am helping. And I thought, you know, I don't know that in my 20s I can say that I helped like I wanted to say that I helped as, you know, I just look back on, on what I wanted to do. And as I looked at what the Bible says about our perspective on finances, I thought, you know, I'm angry that I blew it for so long. As I began to put together this week's message, which we call a biblical plan on finance. What, like, how does the Bible say you should plan your life financially? I got angry at myself because, again, I look back on now almost 50 years that I haven't done this, and I thought, you know, Lord, just help me to be able at this point in my life to just forget my past and to start fresh and to do things the right way, the way your word says to do things. Now, let me give a disclaimer to those of you who are new. Or to those of you, just like I did last week, there, there are lots of people that have been burned financially by churches, that have been burned financially by nonprofit organizations. Um, there's a lot of trust issues between people and pastors when it comes to finances. And I totally understand that. And I want you to be able to sit and listen this month as I teach. Again, I told you, I'm not even going to teach on like, what the Bible says about giving until next week in November 18th. And if you've had a bad experience where you feel like all the church wants is your money, don't come the next two weeks or come and learn, but don't feel obligated. We're not going to make you sign anything. We're not going to make you pledge anything. You, you, you don't, we, don't, we don't need your money as a church. You know, God has been providing for us, and we, we don't need you to specifically do more or less for us. We don't have any bills we can't pay that we need you to help us with. I just want you to feel free all month long to just sit and listen to what the Bible has to say about money. Because I, can, I believe it can be a tremendous, uh, I believe it can have tremendous impact on your life. And I believe it can bring tremendous blessing into your life. I do want to say this. If you're under the age of 30 and you haven't set up your entire life yet, I believe today's message may be one of the most important, practically Bible, biblical messages that you'll ever hear. Which means if you haven't got going full speed you know, Mach 120 in your life yet, and you're in your 20s, if you will do financially what the Bible talks about today, I believe that when you get to 40, all of us will look at you at 40 and say, I wish I was there at 40. We're going to learn some really, really good stuff from a man named Joseph in Scripture today 
about how the Bible says a wise person manages their finances. But I want you to know, if, if, you're, like if, you're, if this is your very first time here, let me just say I'm sorry that you came when we're talking about giving. You know, because a lot of people visit a church and, you know, they, they heard me in my first two minutes and they all oh, all this church wants is my money. Listen, we don't want your money. I do want your obedience to Scripture, so I'm going to teach you some things. But last week, we, we send our guests to survey and say, hey, what did, you think of the, what did you think of the church? And one of our guests, in a very friendly way, said this. Just, I want you to know I know how you're thinking and I'm sensitive to it. We had a guest last week that said, how'd you like the service? He said, I definitely would come back. I appreciate the topic on economics, but as you know, it's always a tough topic to hear on your first, get, your first visit. I get it. If this is your first time, I'm sorry. I promise after two, two more weeks, we, we won't be talking about money anymore. But this month, if you'll begin to live your life the way we're going to talk about this month, uh, I promise you it'll go really, really well. But I understand there's a lot of sensitive feelings toward it as well. I asked a businessman one time who was pretty engaged spiritually and had been engaged in a church his entire life. I said, you know, if you could take everything you've learned about church and finance, and everything you've learned about a church talking about finances, and everything you, if you could take everything you know about church and money, and like combine it into one sentence of great advice, what advice would you give people? If you could have one sentence about church and money, what advice would you give people about church and money if you had one sentence? And he would say, simple, write this down. When the preacher's around, hide your wallet. Uh, that, you know, he said, that's what I would say to people and all the things that I have learned over the last 25 years. So, Hopefully, that's not going to be the feeling of this Bible teaching series on money. Uh, but if it is, sit back, learn, listen. Don't feel obligated to do anything but learn and fact check me and send me an email after you're done if you don't like what I'm saying. I'm cool with that. I'm fine with that. To, last week, we looked at uh, what we called a biblical perspective. What should our attitude be about money? Stewardship, I'm responsible. Gratitude, I'm grateful. Uh, content, uh, contentment, I'm satisfied. Generosity, I'm helping. How do we put together a plan that allows our perspective to be a reality? That's what we're going to study today, Genesis chapter 41. We meet a man named Joseph, and Joseph is called. Joseph at the time lived in the most powerful country of the world. Joseph lived in the land of Egypt at the time when they were building all the great pyramids, at the time when they were building the Sphinx. Um, if, if, you look at, uh, if you look at ancient Egypt, certainly it had its heyday, and all the world flocks to ancient Egypt for the wonders of the world that exist there in the pyramids, Joseph was there during that time. I mean, he, he was there when Egypt was booming. It was probably the most important place on planet Earth at the time. And we find out that Joseph, in his dealings with money, was called at the time the smartest person in the most important intellectual country in the world because he understood how to handle his money. And what do we learn? Genesis chapter 41, we're going to start in verse 15. We're going to roll through a few verses here, so follow along in your Bible, or you can follow along on the screen behind me, and then we're going to come back, and we're just going to talk about, we're going to talk about Joseph's plan, which is a great Bible plan for our lives moving forward. Again, if you're young and aren't already kind of head over heels uh, in a financial plan, man, if you are under 30 and you can, adopt this today and just live with it the rest of your life. Genesis 41, starting in verse uh, 15. Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt and the president of Egypt, said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said that you, uh, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do that, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. 
After them, seven other cows came up. They were scrawny, and they were very ugly and lean. I'd never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came first. And even after they ate them up, no one could tell that they had done so. They, just, they looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good heads of grain are seven years. It's one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They're seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning, and wise man to put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should all collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like, like this guy? one in whom is the Spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You need to underline that. Pharaoh just said, like, you're the smartest dude in the most intellectually developed country in the world. Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Now, what we see here is a biblical plan for resources, for finances. If Joseph came to your house and you said, Joseph, just get everything in my world figured out financially. This is the plan that Joseph, from Genesis chapter 41, would put in place for you. This was a plan that Pharaoh, the most important man in the world with the most important set of advisors in the world at the time, this is the plan that the guy said, like, you're the smartest guy that I have ever seen. Why don't you just take all the money in Egypt and you can handle it? Because your plan financially is a good one. What were the aspects of that plan that you and I can... Here's the deal. Most of us are not going to immediately be able to jump into this plan. Like, we're going to hear this and say, this is a pipe dream. I can't, I can't do that. The plan of today is to understand... What the Bible says is tremendously wise stewardship. Stewardship is being responsible for what you have. And then to figure out how we can work that way. I've got a few assignments for you after church. If you're married, for you and your spouse. If you're single, for you. To go home and sit down and figure out how can I go from where I am to like where Joseph would be if he was in charge of my finances. Four things we're going to see today. Four words that uh, hopefully aren't real foreign to you. But maybe like I was in my 20s, they're, they're real foreign to the way you, you live your life. The first word is margin. You, see, you say, like, like, the, like the stick of fake butter? No. Um, in, in verses 30 and 31, we see that Joseph said, the first thing we need to do is we need to create margin 
within resources. Say, what is margin? Here's how Webster's Dictionary defines margin. Margin is the spare amount or measure or degree allowed or given for contingencies or special situations. Margin is, the way we understand it best, is uh, in print. Margin is the white area around the page. It's what could be used, but what's not used, so there's always a little bit left over. That's what margin is. Most Americans chasing the American dream don't live with margin. They purposely leave some of what they have unused just so there's extra space, just in case of a special situation or a special contingency. I believe the first thing Joseph would do if he stepped into our financial world is he'd say, how much margin do you have? And no, don't go to the refrigerator, go to your bank account. How much margin do you have in your life? Because here's the reality that none of us like to admit, but it is the reality of life in verse 30 and verse 31. Here's what Joseph said about the financial reality of that day. The abundance is going to be forgotten. It's going to go away. In verse 31, he said the the abundance is not even going to be remembered. There will be a day where you don't make financially what you make now, and it will not be more, it will be less. There will be a day when the escrow on your house goes up. There will be a day when the taxes on your home go up. There will be a day when the car breaks down. There will be a day where the kids' school lunches are more. Joseph said, listen, there's going to come a day. When is the day? Well, Joseph knew it was coming for him in seven years. In our life, we just need to admit the obvious. There are going to be hard times in all of our life. And Joseph said, knowing there's coming, the first thing that anyone should ever do financially is leave a little margin. Don't use everything that you have. You know, as, as, uh, as we look in Scripture, um, we find out that the American dream is centered on planning for us. What do I need? What's best for me? Um, what's the next thing that I'm looking for? And it has been the American dream that has instituted phrases like. Here, here's how Americans think. Because we don't think in margin, here's how Americans think. It's it's the American dream that has made popular phrases like minimum wage. Because we think I'll never make less than, or they'll never have the ability to pay me less than. We're always thinking ahead, bigger and better. We don't ever think we'll have less than now. We we think in terms of minimum wage. It can only get better. Uh, We think in terms and career of entry-level jobs. It's only going to get better. Like I'm just at the very beginning, and from here it it can only get better. Uh, We use terms, we've popularized terms in the American economy, uh, a term, the the career ladder, climbing the corporate ladder. And we say this, you know, no one expects you just to stay where you are, making what you make, living where you live, driving what you drive, you know, living the lifestyle that you live for the rest of your life. I mean, like everyone is moving up, right? We're like the Jeffersons. You know, we're moving on up. I mean, that's, that's where we're headed in life. And we see that the American dream looks at margin and it scoffs at it. It's like, not only use what you have, figure out a way to have more. And we see that from the very get-go, what the Bible says about finances and what the American dream says about finances, they're just at odds with each other. Not that we shouldn't try to make more and do more and be more, but it has to be with a very carefully carved-out margin in case, like, the ladder falls, 
And Robbie's laughing at me now because he owns a painting company. A few weeks ago, I was painting with him, and I kept dropping the ladders because they were very big, and they were very heavy, and I didn't know how to move them. And I would pull it off a house, and it would just go, like, right over top of me. You know, every now and then in life, the ladder falls. And when we find ourselves at the bottom, if there's no margin there to catch us, we hit much harder than, than we have to. Let me ask you this question. How much do you have to make in your life in order to not have a plan to spend it all? Like, what salary do you need that, like, above that salary, like, I, don't even, I will never even plan to use that money. Like, are you like me? You know, I'm, I'm a sports fan, and, you know, I hear about a guy like uh, Albert Pujols in the offseason that signs a $240, $250 million contract, and I think this. Who needs that much money? Then I'll have conversations like, I could spend that much money. I thought, you know what? I probably could too. You know, 240, like I don't need 240, 250, but 210, you know, I could, I, I could do that. Like how much mentally do we have to make before we say I have what I need? Before we just stop thinking more, 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 and we, and we begin to develop margin. That, that's what Joseph said. First thing we need to do is we need to realize the abundance will not always, but we need to plan to one day have less. In Ephesians 5.16, there's a great verse that Paul gives to the church in Ephesus, and he, he told them something to do that was actually impossible to do. He said, people need to learn to redeem the time because the days are evil. Now, the word redeem means to purchase or to take back or to take control. And there's no way that any of us can redeem the time. Like, none of us can go back and use 10 minutes from yesterday. It's gone. Once it's gone, it's gone. But Paul says time is so important that if you don't think about it in terms of losing it, you may not use it correctly. I think money's the same way. Now, for, for those of you who are maybe young dads or older dads or single moms, you know, the Bible has some real specific things to say about time. This is, this is not a message on time management, but I'm pretty passionate about this, so I'll throw it in there. You know, when the Bible talks about redeeming the time, here's the Bible's quick, simple little, like, one-minute plan for redeeming the time. The Bible says that everyone should depart daily. Uh, the Bible talks about spending times in solitude, spending times away. So I try to tell everyone, you know, if you want to make the most of your time to be a good dad, a good, a good mom, a good husband, a good wife, a good kid, a, you know, just a, a good person, a healthy person, you've got to have one hour a day where nothing is scheduled in your day. TV off, phone off, read a book, read your Bible. You know, we call it doing devotions, quiet time. But there needs to be time in every day where you set aside time to just get away. The Bible says that we should withdraw weekly. The Bible calls this a Sabbath day. One day where, where we don't do anything at all. One out of every seven, if you want to be healthy, mentally healthy, emotionally healthy, physically healthy. One out of every seven, that you just, you, like you just cross it off the calendar. And someone says, hey, what are you doing on that day? Nothing. Do you want to do? No, I told you, I'm doing nothing. Like my calendar says, do nothing. So I can't do anything because I'm doing nothing that day. I mean, just one day where you do nothing. And then the Bible talks about abandoning annually. You know, built into the Jewish system of history were three one-week vacations that Jewish families would take. Now, a lot of us don't have that built into our jobs and our schedules and our lives, but three times a week, Jewish families would take a minimum of a week vacation to go up to Jerusalem and celebrate what God was doing in their life spiritually. And we see a world now that's run, 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 run. We never turn off our phone. We never turn off our laptops. We sleep with it right by our head. We work seven days a week. We don't take a vacation, and then we wonder why at 30, 35, 40, 42, 45, we're just all completely burnt out. It's because we've, we've not thought about how important time is, so we just use it all. And, and we lose it all. So redeem time. But what Joseph is talking about here is redeeming money. 
Joseph's like, listen, once you've spent your money, like it's gone. So you have to think about how to not spend your money before you start making decisions. So what are some ways that we can create margin? What are some ways that we can redeem uh, money? Well, first, always leave margin, which means don't plan to spend all your money. If you make $30,000 a year after taxes, you can't plan to spend $30,000 a year after taxes. That leaves no margin. I had a really wise pastor tell me when I was 31, I wish he would have told me when I was 21, said, Christian, never budget your life for a raise. Never buy a house, never buy a home, never create a lifestyle for you and your family. Never plan a vacation that you, like if you don't get a raise, it's not gonna work out because you'll chase the raise instead of living your life. So don't, don't keep planning to make more. Um, he told me, if you ever get a raise, don't spend all of your raise. If you get a $5,000 raise, don't go out and buy a $5,000 car. You just gave your, you know, you just literally gave yourself none of that raise. If you get a $5,000 raise, spend a little bit of it. Save a little bit of it. Give a little bit of it. Don't spend all your raise. Hey, we should learn this from Clark Griswold, right? Never budget for a bonus. Because, like, if you don't get it, you're going to go nuts, and Cousin Eddie's going to go get your boss, and he's going to wrap him up and tie him up. I mean, like, greatest movie of all time, right? Griswold's family Christmas vacation. And Clark's wanting that pool with, you know, I don't know if Christy Brinkley came with the pool or not with the pool or if that was even who was in the pool. But, you know, when, when he got, like, the can jam instead of the pool, that was a bad day in the Griswold household, you know, coupled with the squirrel ruining the tree and, uh, you know, everything else that was going on. But never budget for a bonus. Hey, we've got these grand plans. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, I'm expecting a bonus at the end of the year. That's like the very opposite of margin. Never spend all of a bunch. These are just little ideas. I'm not a finance person. I'm a, I'm a preacher. But the, the Bible says put in margin. So these are some ways that, that these, this is how, by the way, we conduct our church. Like we've got margin built into our church. If our offering is 3000 one week and then it's 5000 the next, we don't budget for $5,000 offerings the rest of the year. We stay at the low number just in case. Because we want to have, have margin. We don't want to make our bad planning your financial burden. Uh, what are enemies of margin? What are things that don't allow you to do this? If you haven't done this, why haven't you done it? Probably one of these reasons, materialism. I just like stuff. I just want stuff. I enjoy having stuff. Um, credit cards are a real enemy of margin. When you use credit cards, you're not only spending all of today's money, you're spending most of tomorrow's too. You're not only leaving margin today, you're taking all of tomorrow's margin as well. Discontent, which is an attitude we talked about last week. I can't have margin because I'm just not willing to live at a lifestyle that's a little lower than I'd like to live my lifestyle. I mean, I had, a, had lunch with a, a, good, a young leader in our church, who's, and God has really got his hand on him, and he said something that I've heard over and over and over again. I watched my parents struggle, and I just, I never wanted to struggle like that. Some of us, that's, that's a spot of discontent in us. We have to have a house instead of an apartment because that apartment to us is less than we want. We have to have a new car, a lease car, rather than a used car because that, that used car is a, a symbol of what we, what we don't have. And, and on and on and on, we see that level of discontent. Or, or possibly, perhaps, it's just disorganization. You just haven't planned for it. Maybe you're like me. In the first decade of your adult life, working a job where you made real money, no one ever told you, hey, make sure you don't spend it all. And you're mad at them, or you're mad at a mentor, or a school, or whoever. At this point, just own it. Take responsibility and figure out how to, how to fix it. Um, margin, by the way, 
if, if you're looking at this, you should write this down. Margin is what's set aside, not what's left over. Like some of you think, oh yeah, I have margin, but it's not purposeful. Like you just, like what you don't spend, if you have any extra, you put it aside. That's not margin. That's, that's like those are leftovers. Margin is what's purposefully set aside. I made $100 this week, so I'm only gonna, I'm, I'll never spend more than 75. That's the thought of margin. I'm always gonna leave a little bit um, for, just, for just in case. Um, so how do, how do I determine, Christian, what my margin is? How do I determine what to set aside? Here's the second wise thing that Joseph did that apparently no one else in Egypt had the brains to do. He set number two, a budget. He said, Christian, why are you giving us a finance class? I'm not. Look at me. I'm giving you a Bible study. This just happens to be a finance class built into a Bible study. But I am not a finance teacher. I am not Dave Ramsey. I wish he was my friend because he seems really fun and I'd like to hang out with him more. And I love his books and I love going to his stuff. But I, I'm not Dave Ramsey. I'm just, I'm just a preacher. I'm not telling you really how to live your life financially. I'm showing you what Joseph did and saying, he's a good example, you should think about it. I can't tell you how to spend your money or use your money. Just showing you what worked well in the Bible. Maybe it could work well for you. Joseph said, hey, hey, we gotta set a budget. In verse 34, he said, take a fifth. Not plead the fifth, he said, take a fifth. Say, what is that? This isn't the first time in the Bible we see percentages used for finances. But this is the first time in, in God's word that we see percentages you, used for the realm of 100%. Hey, here's what we think will come in, and uh, here's how much of it we need to set aside. So we see Joseph, he's beginning in his head to build a budget of here's how much we have, here's how much we're going to use, here's how much we should set aside. And he's beginning now to, to build a, a plan for his money so that he doesn't fall behind. My, uh, my little girl turned nine yesterday. My son is 11, and they love to tell jokes, and usually they're... They're very bad jokes, um, and, and I, not like, like sinful jokes, just like they're not funny, um, and, and uh, forgive me for those of you like me who used to tell bad jokes. Um, these are just not funny jokes, um, but I, I heard a, a, a not funny joke the other day about finance, but I, you know, I, I heard it, and it was so stupid that it stuck with me because of the, of the reality of it, uh, and, and the joke was this, what, what is an American's favorite financial food. Anybody? This is bad. I mean, it's not going to be funny. What is an American's favorite financial food? Ketchup. Because we are all spending our whole life trying to catch up financially. Like I said, I told you it wasn't funny, but uh, like you're going to remember that now. And at least one person here is going to tell it at Thanksgiving because you don't have any jokes <laughs> better than that. Um, here, here's the fact about Joseph. Joseph couldn't have known what a fifth was. By the way, a fifth is, is 20% uh, until you know what 100% is. And check this out. Most people in the world today don't even know what 100% of their take-home budgeted pay is. Uh, I, I do a lot of weddings, and I do a lot of family counseling. And a lot of the family counseling revolves around finance stuff, finance disagreements, finance uh, dreams and goals. Um, and a lot of premarital counseling. I, you know, as a matter of fact, everyone that I marry that I just talked to briefly about marrying them, I talked to about financing. And it is usually, actually I can't think of one. I bet I've married almost 100 couples in the last seven or 10 years. I can't think of one. I always ask this question. Do you have a written budget that you live by and you update quarterly? I can't think of one couple who has said yes to that question. 
most Americans don't have a written budget on paper that they update quarterly along with their stage of life to make sure that they're not always playing. What, what's that American's favorite word? Catch up. So Joseph, so let's, like, let's, let's put a budget in place. So how, how do you take a budget? I'm going to give you some, some little ways. This is a spiritual exercise, not a finance exercise. How do, how do I make a budget? Three things that I'm going to ask you to do this week. Not today, but this week. Number one, take inventory. How do you take inventory? I want you to make a written budget of all your current commitments. Right down to the Netflix subscription. $7.99 a month. You can tell that I have that one because I, I pay it. A, a, just go through your credit card statement. Go through your bank statements. Go through your checkbook. A written budget of every dollar you spend that's real. This is what Joseph was doing in his head. It's like, ah, we need to figure out, like, we need to figure out exactly what is coming in. I love what 2 Corinthians 13.5 says. Paul said to the church in Corinth, listen, examine yourselves to see as, as, as to whether you're in the faith. He's like, listen, every now and then you need to just take inventory. You need to do an examination of your life, spiritually, financially, physically. And he told Timothy, are you working out? Physical training has some value. Take inventory. So take an inventory this week. You if you're married, you and your spouse, write it all down to the penny. Some of you are spending money you don't even know you're spending because you just forgot. Um, then, after you take inventory, take charge. You see, an inventory says, here's right now where my money's going. Taking charge says, here's where my money should go. I want you to get a written budget of actual needs. Say, so how do I do that? I don't know. I'm not a financial counselor. I just know scripture talks about understanding what our needs are versus our wants or even our realities and trying to live life according to this plan that Joseph set. You say, what are my actual needs? You know, I think our list in the United States of America is pretty skewed. You know, how, how many of you have ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? Anybody? Raise your hand if you've prayed the Lord's Prayer. If you've, if you've prayed the Lord's Prayer, here's what you have told the Lord in prayer your needs are. Just enough for today. Give us this day our daily bread. Saying, God, here's my needs. Like, I need to eat today. That's what that prayer means. It comes from the book of Exodus. When two million Israelites were wandering around in the desert, and they were hungry, and they were thirsty, and God said, I'll give you food, and I'll give you water every day, and I'll make sure your clothes don't wear out. In the book of James, it's, it shouldn't be interesting that James says, if you say to someone, keep warm and well-fed, this thought of God meeting your needs was that you have food, water, and clothes. That was the thought of God meeting your needs. Now, you and I, we can't think in terms like that. We don't think in terms like that. It's just not the culture that we live in. But that's what the Bible says. I love Lamentations 3, 22 and 24. One of my favorite old hymns is, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Oh, God, my Father, comes straight from Lamentations 3, 22 through 24, where Jeremiah said, Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. There's this Old Testament thought rolled over into the New Testament that our basic needs are just enough for the day. For 40 years in the desert, it was one day at a time. Elijah, who, who was a prophet of God, who ended up in isolation, hiding in a cave because they wanted to take his life because of the message that he preached for three and a half years, was fed, it says, three times a day. So he wasn't even one day at a time. He, he was one meal at a time, trusting God. And, and when we think about what, what we need I want you to budget according to real needs, not wants. Now, I had a radical wake-up call to this last April when I spent a few days in India. And, and we went to India. We're taking, I think, 10 to 12 people to India again in February. 
We have some orphan girls that we support over there. Our church pays, you know, just as a part of our offering, every time you give, a portion of that offering goes to, to take care of orphan girls, and we're hoping to continue to increase that. But we were in this orphanage where 125 girls live, uh, and it's where they live, it's where they sleep, it's where they eat, it's where they do school. Uh, you know, it's in India. It's in buildings that would be condemned, like in the United States of America. I mean, you know, they're not, it's not like what we have here. And on one of the walls of the school, um, I looked over. And, I mean, the school is also where they sleep, is also where they eat. I mean, it's just like one big room the size of the stage. But there was a row of shelves, um, and there was like, I don't know, probably 125 to 150 boxes that are a little smaller than this. This one is too big. I brought this from my house. They were probably that much shorter than this. And I was looking at all those, um, and I asked somebody who I was with, because they all had a name on them. And I said, what are, what are those boxes? And they said, oh, that's the girls' stuff. And I said, like their school supplies? And they said, no, that's their stuff. Like everything they possess in life. Each one of them has one box of everything they possess in life. And you know, it's at moments like those where you feel cheapened to live in the God bless United States of America because you're like, you know, I complain about moving from a box TV to a flat screen TV. This is daily bread. When everything you own can fit into a box and you're just living for God one day at a time. See, if we could shift our perspective, we, we could get much closer to this. And then after experiencing that, we go to a little play that the girls had put together for us. And they started singing a song of gratitude out of their heart for us because we were there and you know, we were some of the Americans who, who are helping to give them three meals a day and a toothbrush and shoes and stuff. And I think, we've, do we have that video queued up? So here's what I sit down to as these girls start singing to us. Um, and I just started bawling as soon as they started singing because the message of their song, these are kids with less than a box of possessions in, in their entire life and their heart towards them. Go ahead, Jan, if you have that with sound. does someone with a box of possessions sing, say, feel the words thank you? Feel thankful. It took me going halfway around the world to realize that my actual needs are not my actual needs. And to realize that maybe with a little bit of just critical uh, inventory of my own life, maybe I could get where God wanted me to be. You can see now why I'm so excited in February to go hang out with those girls again, just to be with them, to love them, to hug them. Um, 
you know, they're saying thank you to us. And it's like, no, th- you know, I think we need you more than, more than you need us. So take charge. Um, you know, may, maybe here's a good thought for margin. It's probably impossible for most American budgets. Uh, maybe you say, hey, I'm going to start my, what, maybe this is my daily bread. Maybe I'm going to start at 80% of my take-home pay. And I'm going to try to live off that. You say, why 80%? Because Joseph said, take a fifth. I, I, I literally am just making up a number that I found in the Bible. But maybe we start with that. And just see what can happen as we try to arrange and rearrange. So we're going to take inventory. We're going to take charge. And then thirdly, we're going to take action. We're going to try to go from where we are to where we need to be and put together some kind of written plan for our finances that matches what the Bible, how the Bible says we should interact with our lives financially. By the way, you know, this is not, this is not just stuff I'm giving you in a Bible. Like, this is not only how I try to run my life. This is how I try, under the guidance of our finance team, to run our church, doing these things. I believe this works, or God wouldn't have given it to us as such a great plan. So I'm going to ask you, between like now and the end of the year, to maybe begin to sort this stuff out. This will help you grow spiritually. I, I believe that. Number three, we've got to go quick now. Um, we've got to have margin. We need to have a budget. Joseph says you've got to have savings at all times. I, I love this thought here. In verses 35 and 36, he told the king, listen, we have to hold in reserve a, a, a particular amount. Um, and this is not like retirement. This isn't just what's taken out of your check for one day down the road. Um, this is what I would call reserve, not retirement. Just This is extra. For when extra things happen. Right now, we extra things uh, for so many of us happen on a credit card. This is just building up, uh, you know, like financial experts call it an emergency fund. I've heard it called other things. But just to make sure, as a part of the 80%, even some of that, um, I'm saving a little bit. Proverbs 13.11 tells us in wisdom, whoever gathers money little by little will make it grow. Proverbs 21.20 says, the wise have wealth and luxury, fools spend whatever they get. I get a $100 paycheck, I go, get a, I go spend $100. The Bible calls that foolish. So as we look at savings, as we look at margin, we look at budgeting, there's one word that I want you to write down. And this is not word number four. This is just an extra word that I threw in there. There's one word that describes what I, what I consider the first three aspects of biblical economics, and it's the word restraint. It's the word restraint. I'm going to hold back a little bit to be wise financially. This is, what, this is not what Christian tells me to do. This is what Joseph did, and because he did it, he was considered like the smartest man on planet Earth at the time. Restraint. Hey, let me ask you this. Don't you wish the United States of America practiced a little more restraint in the way we borrow money from everyone in the world? Do you think the election would be different? Now, let's not tell a politician to do for the country what we won't do for ourselves. Restraint, right? That's what you call hypocrisy. Expecting someone else to do what you're not willing to do. So financial restraint allows you then to live with financial impact and purpose. How? Number four. This, by the way, is Joseph's plan, not mine. Giving. Here's the cool thing that happens. When you live by God's plan, margin, uh, what's the second one? Margin, budget, savings, when there are needs. We say at our church, see a need, meet a need. You can do something. Um, what's really interesting, in the Old Testament, the, the word, say the word gleaning. Say it again. It's a really interesting word. In the Old Testament, this word was used of when farmers would, would plow their field or uh, people who worked in the vineyard would pick the vines. 
In the Old Testament, they commanded people, never, never collect all the crops. Never pick all the apples off the tree. Never get all the grapes off the vine. Leave a little left. Leave a little. Make sure you never cut the corners of your field. Always leave extra because they said the poor and the needy can then come and glean off your field. They can, uh, what you have left over will be enough for them when they really, really need it. We're connected with a ministry. I've had several people ask me this week, are we going to do anything for the victims of Hurricane Sandy? We're connected with a ministry out of Lynchburg, Virginia. One of our oversight, uh, one of our oversight groups is the Liberty Church Planning Network who approves our budgets and, um, you know, they approve our staff and the things we do. And if we were to ever buy land or buy a building, they're engaged in the process of helping lead our church. They're connected to an organization called Gleaning for the World. That's who we went to Joplin with. For those of you who went to Joplin with me, last year when the tornado hit. Uh, Gleaning for the world is this. It's a humanitarian organization that anytime there's a disaster anywhere on planet Earth, they have storehouses filled with water and soap and toiletries and food, basic necessities that are located within eight hours of every major section in the United States of America. And when disaster strikes, they send a truck to that area, they load up as much food and water as they can, they get it in the disaster zone, and then they call churches like ours to say, hey, can you get it and pass it out? That's how they work. As we talk about when we give away 12% of our budget, part of that goes to the Liberty Church Planning Network, who's actively supporting Gleaning for the World, who's on the East Coast helping right now. Everyone says, how are we going to help? We are. Those who give in the offering, like part of that goes to help people not just with Sandy, but with everything else. But the name is so interesting, Gleaning. We're going to leave some extra in case anyone ever needs anything. That's the thought of it. In Genesis 41, verses 39 through 40, um, God said this, or, or Pharaoh said this about Joseph. You are the most uh, discerning and wise person here. Why? Because your plan not only takes care of us, Joseph, and our plan not only takes care of the Egyptians, Joseph, but our plan, if done correctly, will have some left to take care of everyone in the world. Because in verse 57, we find out in verse 57 of Genesis that when the famine finally came, here's what it says. We, we might as well just read it if your Bible pages haven't turned too far away from that. Here's what it says in verses 53 through 57. The seven years, I'm Genesis 41. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end. The seven years of famine began, just as Joseph has said, and there was famine in all the other lands. But in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food, and Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt, and all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was so severe. See, Joseph put a plan in place that not only took care of him, but at a time when the world needed it, had plenty left over to take care of others as well. That's the biblical plan for wise stewardship. Margin. Um, why do I keep forgetting number two? Budgeting. Uh, savings. Giving. I guess I struggle with that budget piece, huh? Um, you know, that's how the Bible says to conduct yourself. So, man, we can always, we can give, we can save, we can be comfortable. We can live life always honoring God and, and never be in a place of just tremendous hurt. You know, last week we looked at statistics on global poverty. We said less than half the world has clean water. Less than half the world has running water, two things that we have. Le only a third of the world roughly has transportation. Almost 70% of the world walks everywhere that they go. Less than a quarter of the world has education. They're literate. They, they, can, they can read and they can write. Uh, we talked about how, how little of the world has real health care. They don't have eye, eyeglasses or contacts. 
how little of the world has electricity. And we say, you know, we, we have been blessed. We've been blessed. What a shame to mismanage our blessing to the place where we can't help people who have not been as blessed as we are when the time comes to help. And that's where, that's where most of us are. We can pity them, and a lot of us do, or we can help them because we've lived our life in a manner that, that allows us to do so. Now, here's what I believe as I look at this. I don't know that there's a person in this room that, uh, that would say today, well, I don't believe that's God's plan for me. Or, you know, I, I think I've got a better plan. I, I don't even think that's a good plan for me. I think here's what most say. That's not a realistic plan for me. That's a difficult plan for me, Christian. You know, I, I read a word the other day. Uh, I, I guess it was a couple words put together that I hadn't really heard, and then I started researching it. There's this whole new terminology now in the world uh, of what is called a quarter-life crisis. Y'all heard this? Used to be, we're, we're familiar with the midlife crisis, right? I mean, we all watched our dad at 50, like, get a Harley and a tattoo, and we're like, well, what's going on here? You know, I mean, we, we know what, my dad didn't do that, by the way, but some of yours did, because I know them. Um, but that, that, that's beside the point. The midlife crisis is now becoming the quarter-life crisis. And here's what I'm reading about as I study New York Times and Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report. At about between 25 and 35, all these people who have decided to go to college, get a degree, and start in a job that will pay them X, somewhere between 25 and 35 are saying, this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is not something that will work for me and my family for the rest of my life. This is not going to provide purpose for the rest of my life. And most of them, are so overcommitted with their finances that they can do nothing about it. This is, this is not who I want to be. This is not what I want to do. I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. However, I can't afford this house doing something less. However, we can't go on vacation. However, however, basically my finances now have put me in a place where I have to do what I have decided at 30. With on average... I have nearly 60 years of my life left, and for the next 60 years, I can't do what I want to do. I can't live how I want to live. I can't be engaged with my family the way I want to be engaged because, like, I messed up financially. That's what the Bible says. You have become slave to the land. Your money now owns you, and you have to keep doing what you want to do. Listen, there are some of us in here, like me, 34, 40, 45, you hear this, and you, your first reaction is kind of like mine. You're kind of angry. It's like, I wish someone would have told me this when I was 22. If you're 22, 25, 30 in here, listen to this stuff and do it. Even if you don't love Jesus, love God, or read the Bible, do this stuff. I promise you, you'll have a better life at 50 than your, your friends who don't go to church or maybe some of your friends who love Jesus but who won't manage their finances biblically. You know, God has a great plan for our life, and we accept that plan for our marriage. We accept it for our parenting. We accept it for our eternity. But when it comes to our finances, for some reason, we want to say, wait a minute, God, like back off. Sometimes we need to tell churches to back off and denominations to back off and pastors to back off. But when we say, God, back off, that's not a good place to be. So here's what I want you to do this week. Is this, is this journey hard? Yes. Is it impossible? It may seem that way. Not impossible, maybe difficult, but not impossible. Here's what I want you to do as a young single, as a young family, as an older family. Let's, let's begin to live this way, if we can, in our life. I want you, number one, develop a written budget this week. 
based on your current commitments, your current needs. They just, just write down what you're doing now. You're not planning, you're just, you're just reviewing. But write it down, get it on paper. If you're married, you have to do this as a couple. Number two, honestly answer these questions. And this, these should be on the bottom of your sermon notes. You shouldn't be having to take these notes. Um, answer these questions. Is there margin? Is there any room left over? Do we have the ability to save? Do we have the ability to give? Can't, like currently where we are, can we live the way that Joseph said we should live? And that's a yes or no answer. And then number three, begin to develop a biblical plan for your 2013 finances. I tell people, as, as a leader, I'm much more of a crock pot than a microwave. If I make a decision in November, I might implement it in January. So I'm not saying fix this by next week and next week be ready for the next lesson. I'm saying begin to dig down deep to discuss this, to put together a plan and see how that works for you. Now, if the Bible is wise enough to speak to your money, here's what God convicted me of today. It's wise enough to speak to your eternity. It's wise enough to speak to your salvation. And today we learned some lessons about money from God's word, but the reason this church exists is so that people who don't know God personally and intimately can have that connection. And here, literally, here's how God gave me this idea driving down the road this morning. Um, my watch right now says 1242 because uh, I don't know how to change it. Like I pressed every button on it. I set the alarm. I turned the light on. Like I got all that, but I cannot figure out how to change the time. So I just, I'll just subtract an hour for the next seven or eight months, and then it'll be right in March again. I mean, I, you know, I, like, I don't know how to work this watch. Somebody bought it for me. I wear it, but I don't, they must have set it for me. I don't know how it works, and it really annoyed me. Um, and I felt like God spoke to me as I was playing with my stupid watch. He said, Christian, there are going to be some people at church today that they really want to be right with God. They want to be close to God. They don't know how that works. You need to tell them which button to push to open their heart and their life to God. So if you're in here today, way more important than your finances is your heart, the condition of your relationship with Jesus in your eternity one day. If you're in here today and you're not personally connected with the God of the universe, you've not given him your life, you've not given him your eternity, you've not asked him to forgive you of all the things you've messed up along the way and to help you correct him going forward, you can do that today. I, I, I don't know how to set my watch. I do know how to do that thing with you, though. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do as we close today. I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes just so we can kind of have kind of a, 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 you know, a private spiritual moment. There's no magic to heads bowed or eyes closed other than it just allows you to kind of focus on yourself rather than those around you. And if you're here today and maybe you're new today, I guarantee you did not come here today to learn about money. But maybe you came here today searching for more in your life, hoping to connect to God or reconnect to God or have God do something in you that if he doesn't do it, things are going to kind of fall apart. And today, the God of the universe is to be found at Journey Church International. I love what God told Moses. God is in you. He's near you. He's closer than you could imagine. He literally is a prayer away. If you're in here and you've never committed your life to God, or maybe it's been a while and now you need to recommit your life to God and get back in the fold spiritually. Then today I want to pray a prayer with you. Say, Christian, I want to be close to God, but like I don't, like, I don't, I don't know which button to push. I can help you with that. I've read the instruction manual. And it says this, that if you believe in your heart that God loves you, that his son Jesus came, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the grave, proving that he could both forgive you and give you eternal life, 
And if you would put your trust in that, a word the church calls faith, but really it's just trust. You just believe that for yourself. The Bible says that God will forgive you. He'll save you. He will kind of take over the driver's seat, the cockpit of your conscience, and guide your life to, to guide your life with the Holy Spirit. And everything can become brand new. If you are in here today and you've never done that, or you need to nail down that commitment, or you need to come back to God, then just sitting where you're seated, you can pray the words right after me. You don't even have to pray them out loud. I'll pray them, and you can just pray them in your conscience from your heart. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that Jesus is Lord, that God will save you. So pray this today, just in the quietness of your heart. Dear God, today I need to be connected or reconnected to you. Today, I trust that you love me. I trust that Jesus died for me to forgive me. And I trust that he rose from the dead, proving he could give me eternal life when this life is over. And God, I put all of my belief, my trust, my faith in those spiritual facts. And I ask you today to forgive me, to save me, to change me, to guide my life. And I commit now, or I recommit now, to live for you the best I know how, as long as I know how, for the rest of my life. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you just prayed that prayer with me this morning and, and just threw kind of a whole message on money out the window and just focused on God right now, if you just prayed that prayer with me with nobody looking around, would you just slip your hand up so that I can know the commitment that you just made right now, just all over the place. Just hold your hand up, put it up, and right back down. Yes. Anybody else? Just put it up, right back down. God, thank you for moving in the hearts of men and women who need you. Now I want to transition. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. There are some of us in here, like me five years ago, who need some serious financial adjustments in our life if we're going to get like where the Bible says we should try to get to. If you're in here today, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, it's none of my business, but I'm just going to ask you where you are in the quiet of your heart. Like if you hear today about Joseph and you desire that, but you wonder if it's just too far away, you're making less than you've ever made and you've used your savings and your 401k is dry and you're like, God, there's just, there's just no way for me. We need a miracle. Guess what? We serve a God who does those things. Would you just kind of commit in your heart right now? If you believe this is the plan for you, but you have no idea how you're going to get there, would you just pray something like this? God, I see it, and I believe it, and I want it, but I have no idea how that's a reality in my life. Help me to follow you in obedience. And help me as long as it takes to get to the finish line of this area in my life. God, thank you for practical lessons on key areas in life. John 10.10 10 says, you came that we may have life and have it to the full or more abundantly. So God, life with your plan financially is better than life with our plan financially. Help us try to get there. We ask these things in Jesus' name today. And everyone said, amen.